Welcome to Modern Sign Books. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their lives and writing with art book specialist Roger Nichols. And don't forget to pick up a copy of your favorite books at bjbooks.com. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. You know, when we talk with Karen Slaughter, it's so easy to fall back on a wonderful web of statistics. Her novels have been published in 120 countries, sold more than 35 million copies, and my favorite, some researcher had fun with this, have been on the global bestseller list for more than 2,500 weeks. That's more than 48 years cumulatively, which is longer than she's been alive. Now, that's impressive, but it doesn't tell the real tale. The reason this success is so richly deserved is because Ms. Slaughter writes stories that are both utterly compelling and don't read it alone late at night chilling. Among them, Coptown, the kept woman, and her latest is The Good Daughter, which is not a Will Trent and Sarah Linton, but a standalone and is immensely compelling. At least twice, this reader had to put the book down for a moment to regain his composure before snatching it up again in eagerness. We are very pleased to welcome Karen Slaughter. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, something a bit different this time, and, and an odd question to start with. At the beginning, Samantha Quinn is 15, Charlotte is 13, uh, her father, their father, Rusty, uh, is a criminal defense lawyer. Rusty is not gender specific, and Samantha and Charlotte get called Sam and Charlie. Are you playing a little bit with the conscious choices about some androgyny here? Absolutely. And, you know, their mother, Gamma, uh, that's a nickname because she was a scientist and she studied gamma rays, mm-hmm. so they call her Gamma. Um, she very purposely chose those names for her children because as a scientist, Working in the 50s and 60s, she saw firsthand how difficult it was for women to get papers published and to have their science relied upon. She's someone who worked at Fermilab and NASA. She's actually based on a woman I talked to who led just this really fascinating life uh, in science. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that problem and, and really, you know, later in life, Sam especially, she becomes a patent lawyer. She really comes to understand why her mother chose those names for her, and she's very appreciative for it. It is, it's one of those fascinating little details. And there's one of the reviewers ca- talked about the characters leaping off the page as flawed as they are fascinating. And another uh, talked about how they feel desperately authentic. And I like that phrase a lot. Uh, it feels very, very real and very complex. These are they're not cardboard people that are generated by some roll-the-dice uh, kind of character generator. Uh, how many of them are, other than Gamma, are based on real people? Well, you know, I think that I would like to say that I'm so creative, I just created these characters <laughs> out of whole cloth. But I, I really honestly believe they're an amalgamation of everybody I've ever met, you know, that I just notice details about people. I travel quite a lot uh, touring other countries and the U.S., and if you really want to see people at their worst, pay attention at the airport. And so I'm <laughs> always in airports watching people do awful things and that just reveal themselves. I'm sure I do the same thing, and that's I always make details as I'm traveling about different quirks of personality that I want to incorporate into my characters. I think the observation, I mean, 
as I go through, I take notes, and one of the things that I, I tend to put them in categories uh, because my wife's a researcher and she tends to do stuff like that. But um, is one category is cool character reveals, and one of the ones that leaped out on me is. Photos had never done Rusty justice. In person, he was perpetually in motion, always fighting, gesturing with his hands like a great Oz, so he didn't notice the weak old man behind the curtain. Great analogy there. Well, thank you. And, you know, Rusty was kind of an amalgamation for me of the Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird versus the Atticus Finch in Go Set a Watchman, you know, who was a very flawed and, you know, kind of... um, shockingly open to racism kind of guy and while Rusty isn't racist he's certainly someone who has his own moral compass and he believes in right and wrong but as defined by himself so that doesn't necessarily jive with what other people think is right and wrong and part of the book is Charlie and Sam's evolution as young girls who kind of think of their dad as this really great Clarence Darrow type of person uh, and then as adults, they realize, well, maybe he's not all that I thought he was. Maybe he's doing some things he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Uh, Charlie says at one point, he says, I hate him for taking care for not taking care of himself, but I love him for living his life on his own terms. I think we've all met people like that, haven't we? <laughs> yes. I, I had this wonderful editor in France, and she was my editor from my very first book. And whenever I'd go over there, I'd spend time with her. But she smoked like a chimney. And she would drink a screwdriver at breakfast and say she was getting her vitamins. And she just lived life to the fullest. And eventually she got cancer. Uh, But, you know, even up till the very end, she was doing exactly what she wanted to do. So, you know, part of me thinks, gosh, she was so brave to do that. And another part of me thinks, very selfishly, I wish she hadn't because I would want her in my life forever because she was just that kind of magnetic person. But, you know, I guess the things I loved about her were the things that eventually kind of brought her down. Yeah. You know, I have a tendency to rush into details and not let people know about the general plot right away. So I probably should backtrack and do that because uh, this is this is a, one of those that plunges you right into the, the story as it begins. The, the, the two daughters are young. They've, they've had to move into this crummy old house because someone has firebombed their beautiful home uh, because Dad Rusty is defending people that they think are the bad folks out there. And uh, from there, it just gets worse as the home is invaded and a whole bunch of stuff happens that's not very good. And I don't know how much to reveal at this point, but I'll let you say where, where it's comfortable for you. Well, you know, it is hard to talk about because there's a lot of um, action happening early on. Uh, But we meet Charlotte and Sam when they're 13 and 15, respectively, and they're living in this temporary home, this old farmhouse, uh, from uh, given to them the use of them to by a client of their father's, who probably was not a very upstanding citizen. Uh, But something awful happens, and it changes them for the rest of their lives. And Charlie has to live with the psychological scars of it. Sam has to live with the very real physical scars of this tragic event. And, you know, this is what happens in the opening chapter. And then in Chapter 2, we meet them as adults. And and Charlie is a lawyer like her dad. She's not in that legal gray area. She represents mostly juvenile offenders, and so she's an advocate for them to try to get their lives back on track. Uh, But then something awful happens again. And she realizes that maybe she uh, 
has not dealt with the things that have happened to her in her life and that it's really negatively impacting how she interacts with everybody from her husband who she really loves to her father to her sister who's moved away and kind of estranged herself from the family it it it, that's beautifully summed right there you've done this before i can tell yeah. <laughs> Another aspect that, that it's it's like when authors hide what they call Easter eggs or little little gems throughout it. Though these aren't Easter eggs as so much as they are cool bits of knowledge. I learned about paralipsis, for instance, a rhetoric device where you add emphasis to a subject by promising to say little or nothing about it. I knew the concept, but I had never had the name for it before. Well, you know, with with this family, they're very show-offy in their language, and they, they're always trying to one-up each other. And that was a lot of fun with me, because one of my sisters and I do that sort of thing. Um, and I think it has to be handled right, because if you're the audience to it, at one point Sam, who's kind of an outsider to her family, witnesses it and thinks she just can't watch the show right now. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I liken it to when you're studying for your SATs. You know, you'll never know as much about the Fairy Queen or a rhetorical device or math or any of that ever again in your life. It's just one for that test. So, I, for instance, I learned a lot about hinges uh, for Sam's part of the book, uh, and all of that knowledge is completely gone to now. But when I was writing her character, I knew everything about hinges. Right, because she at one point is as defending a, a patent uh, against somebody who has infringed, and you, you do the technical details just enough so we understand what's going on without having us scratch our heads and go, "I have to run to the dictionary again." It's it's a really interesting balance you're able to work with. Well, thank you. You know, it's, it's really hard for a writer who does a lot of research to know when to stop showing the research, and I always try to make it feel as organic as possible. Yeah. There is um, another aspect to it is that there are some thoughtful little bits and pieces. There's, there's a, a thing you talk about, what a rapist takes away from a woman, that was really impactful. It's just a couple of sentences. If you don't mind, uh, I'll, I'll read that for you. Um, what a rapist takes away from a woman is her future. The person she is going to become, who she is supposed to be, is gone. In many ways, it's worse than murder because he has killed that potential person, eradicated that potential life, yet she still lives and breathes and has to figure out another way to thrive or not in some cases. That's very powerful writing. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's something that I've touched on in my previous books, just how awful that crime is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love that that line comes from Rusty because he will defend anyone you know, he'll defend a terrorist or an abortion clinic or anyone he thinks can be served by justice. But the one type of perpetrator he won't defend is a rapist because he had a case very early in his career where he defended a rapist and the victim ended up killing herself. And he took that responsibility on his shoulders and just said, I'm never going to do that again. And and I think a lot of people, especially people who are in the, the business of defending criminals, will tell you that those are the worst cases because they're, they're not the easiest to prove. And as a defense lawyer, even if you know your client's guilty, you have to give them the de- best defense. Um, so it's just, it's a messy kind of case anyway. But a lot of times the focus is on the perpetrator, and I wanted to put the focus on the victim. Yeah, and often one of the really sad parts about it is the victim's reputation is attacked 
uh, ahead of time as, as the blame the victim is is uh, concept is just frightening in that particular case. Oh, absolutely. And it's the only crime where the cops show up and say, do you want to prosecute? Do you <sighs> want us to find the bad guy? Yeah. I mean, it really is amazing how, you, you know, one of the things that really shocked me in my research was during the Reagan era, one in every 20 rape cases was successfully prosecuted. And now it's closer to one in every 100. Wow. And that's really shocking. You know, we have... There's such a low number of times when the the case is a, a false accusation. You know, statistically, this has been proven out. But we use that as the rule rather than the exception when we approach these cases. And I, I just honestly think there needs to be a shift in thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, just up on a shift, uh, another question here, and that is, I understand that you're the youngest of three sisters, and I'm curious how the family reacts to when you do sister interaction in your stories. Well, I always tell my sisters if they want to write a different kind of sister relationship, they're welcome to write their own books. <laughs> um, but for the most part, they're, they're used to this. You know, when I first started writing when I was a little girl, most of my stories were about my sisters dying or being mutilated or, you know, things like that. And, and even I, w- I would tell them really awful, scary stories and make them cry. And then I would cry because they were upset. And my parents would come in and see us all crying and blame my sisters for upsetting me and Ooh. they would get in trouble so i was rewarded very early on for scaring the, the crap out of people so <laughs> i think i came to this career honestly you know and the thing about it is that you look so angelic in the photos uh, in the books and so sweet and like you just and yet it, it's kind of the alfred hitchcock talked about murder by the babbling brook being more frightening than that in a dark and scary alley and i think maybe you've absorbed some of that along the way too Maybe, but you know, I'm sure you talk to a lot of crime writers. We tend to be pretty laid back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the romance writers who are kind of tense and uh, <laughs> uh, sharpish sometimes. And I think that just getting it out on the page is very cathartic for us. And, and it, it kind of makes us okay with a lot of things that upset other people. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the things you said in, in, in talking to some of the folks in, in Goodreads that uh, – that the reason this is a standalone is because you were not quite yet formulated with what you were going to do with uh, with the next uh, Will's novel. And I'm hoping that that is gestating really well with, at this point. It is. And, you know, the, the plot of the next Will Trent book uh, relies on a, a topic that I need to research more. And there's actually a specialist uh, in the FBI who I want to speak with and we've had some communications and I have more questions and I want to make sure that I get the plot right. I feel so grateful to people who love Will Trent and who have rooted for him for all these years and who really want Will Trent stories and I always say to them, you know, I want to deliver the best story I can. I don't want to just write one because you you want a Will Trent book. I want to make sure it's a fantastic read. I'm saying something new about the characters and that you're, you feel when you finish that book like you've gotten a really good story. You want it right rather than right now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's one little aphorism that, that popped in. I'm wondering if it's a Southern saying or, or I'm not just familiar with it, but it says, they'll only get your goat if you show them where you keep your hay. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those uh, those idioms that doesn't really make sense, but I had a teacher who said that to me. 
um, you know, every kid at some point in their life has been teased, and that was her advice, and it, it really just stuck with me. I mean, gosh, I must have been in the fifth or sixth grade when this happened, um, and, and it just is some typical thing that a Southern teacher would say to a kid. <laughs> but it, it, it's like it makes sense on the surface, but not when you think about it. I, I think I like that aspect of it very well. Speaking yeah, speaking absolutely. of teachers, most writers have some teacher that they revere or respect or uh, think back very fondly on. Was there somebody for you like that? Absolutely. Um, my ninth grade teacher, Miss Bennett, uh, she was amazing, and I was terrified of her. And I think a lot of good teachers, their kids are terrified of them because they don't want to disappoint them. Uh, and she she was very fair. She wasn't cruel to us or anything. She just made us want to be at her level, which I think is the best way a teacher can be. And she was such a huge influence on me because she said to me, you're a good writer, but you could be better. And I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, what do you mean? And I wanted to be better because of her. And she was actually the second person I told when I got my first book deal. And she was always in my life. She passed away a few years ago, but uh, she was probably the most important adult in my life, other than my father, for many years of my life. Ah, but see, now that's that's the thing that, that people uh, have a tendency to, to look back for, and it gets bigger and bigger as you go on because it was so early uh, with that um, that it took part, part with you. Uh, and it seems to me like that uh, that's being very helpful not just at the moment, but all the way through, because you lit up when I mentioned that offer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so many kids were touched by her. And when she passed away, you know, we were all on Facebook talking about how great she was. And, you know, it was the small things, like she taught us how to shake hands with people. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I do every day in my life. You know, when I meet people as an author, I always shake their hands and she told us, you know, have a firm grip, but not too firm. Look people in the eye. And that's certainly, she was an English teacher. That's not something that's in the English curriculum. But she she was interested in us being good humans and good citizens of the world. And so that was her, also her focus, is not just teaching us Shakespeare and teaching us short stories and things like that and creative writing. She wanted us to be real good human beings in the world. Uh, just about out of time this morning, but I did want to ask, in in preparing for, for all the travel and the, and the meeting people that you do, do you have to make any special preparations like, you know, putting special stuff in your hands that doesn't get after shaking people's hands all day at a book signing? Well, I am careful about washing my hands, but that's just because I get colds all the time and I don't want to give colds to people. Um, but, you know, mostly the, the thing I worry about most when I'm touring is that I'm going to run out of clean clothes. That's the big thing. Uh, once that's taken care of, I'm fine. All right. It has been a real delight to speak with you again. You're you're so much fun. And again, such a sweet lady for writing such really good spooky books. Our guest this morning has been Karen Slaughter. Her latest is called The Good Daughter. Highly recommended. If you enjoy her work and would like to get an autographed copy of her book, please contact VJ Books. They can set you. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Modern Sign Books. Make sure to follow and comment on who you would like to hear next. Feel free to check out our other author interviews. And visit vjbooks.com to pick up signed copies of all of your favorite books.